That's the cue. I invite you to stand, please, in reverence to God and also in honor of his word. And turn, please, to Psalm 98. I'm going to read this psalm. It's uh, nine verses, a relatively short psalm. But please don't think that translates into a relatively short message, all right? Can't promise you anything on that. The logic doesn't always work out that way. So, all right, this is Psalm 98. We're not sure who the human author is, but we know this was breathed out by the Spirit of God. So we're going to read the psalm, then I've got a couple of introductory things. I want to ask you a, quote, profound question, and then we'll speak to the author of this psalm, all right? So Psalm 98 reads as follows. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Thank you. You may be seated. And here's my profound question of the morning for you, just to get the gears spinning there. And that is, what is a prophetic eschatological psalm? When's the last time you used that word eschatological in a normal conversation? Hey, Charlie, how's it going? How are you feeling today? Uh, I'm feeling uh, eschatologically optimistic. Have you heard that one recently? I haven't. We use it in seminary, but I mean on the streets, we don't hear it too much. I'm going to give you three categories of psalms, and these are psalms that explicitly refer to something in the future, okay? Something in the future to the psalmist or something even to the future uh, for us, right? And so here's the first category. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write down prophetic psalms, and prophetic psalms look exclusively to the future, to the first advent. Now, in our case, it's already past tense. The first advent, we would say Christmas, right? So when David and others wrote, of course, they're B.C., and so they're looking ahead and talking about some of the details of Christ's first coming, the first advent. Here's a couple if you want them for your notes. Uh, Psalm 16, Psalm 40, Psalm 45, that's 16, 40, 45. Those are prophetic psalms. Now, we have a second category, and those are prophetic slash eschatological psalms. And these have a double focus. They focus on the first advent of Jesus, but then also further and future to us, the second advent or the return of Christ, as we would call it, right? So they focus on two events. And I'll give you a few samples here if you want them again for your notes. Uh, Psalms 2, 22, 69, 110, 118. Again, 2, 22, 69, 110, 118. I feel like I'm at a bingo game or something like that, but 
All right, and then the third category is strictly eschatological psalms, and they focus on one event, and that's the second coming only of Jesus Christ, right? And so here's a few of those. Uh, Psalm 72, and then a large cluster uh, from 96 to 99. So that's 96, 97, 98, 99. Again, Psalm 72, and then 96 to 99. All right, we're going to focus just on one of those. This is an eschatological psalm. It focuses only on the second coming of Jesus Christ, okay? And I think it would be wise to speak to the one who breathed out this psalm, and then we'll begin to look at it together, all right? Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for breathing out this portion of Scripture. We believe you have something for us today. And for myself and my brothers and sisters, I pray if there's some rearranging in our thinking, some altering in our perspective, some behavior modification. I pray your spirit would work that in us. We want to be more like Jesus, and we realize that's a stretching and a growing process, but we would not dare step out and do this in our own strength. We would fail. We need your help. We admit that we are utterly dependent upon your power. And so, Holy Spirit, please do your work in my heart and each of our hearts. For your glory, we, may we bear much good fruit. We pray all these things in the awesome name of Jesus and all my brothers and sisters said, amen. amen. You've heard the name uh, Matt Redman. What does Matt Redman do for a living? Is he a hamburger flipper? Is he a computer programmer? What does he do? This is dialogue time. He sings, right. He's a worship leader. He's written many great songs. I really enjoy listening to him. I have a quote from him focusing on worship. There's two pieces to it. Here's the first piece. This is what he writes. He says, there is a time for stillness, and reflection. It's vital that we embrace silent moments and that we breathe reverence into our worship of Jesus. Now, let me pause there. Uh, I just graded a paper a few days ago, one of our doctoral students. Our doctoral students come to, to the seminary for one week. So they do three months of pre-course work, and then the, the large, the bulk of the work is they have three months after that class, after being on campus, to do a pretty major project. And so in this particular class, this major project, it's substantive. It's, it's a lot of work. One piece of it is they're required to go on a retreat somewhere, just get away from everything, and spend time alone with God in his word and praying. And so this one fellow, I was reading his paper, it was a blessing to me. I had tears in my eyes reading it. Now, the Lord really, I don't know how else to say this, and I can't give you the details, but he really showed up in a powerful way. And this was transformative for the student. It was evident as I read it, and he confirmed that. He left his uh, phone at home with his wife, brought his laptop, but didn't use it online. He, in fact, I don't think they even have the web where he went. It was a retreat center, but just used it because he ran out of paper. He was journaling so much. He had a whole pad. God was really working. And so he ran out of paper and had to start typing just oh, you know, on a Word document. It was really powerful. And, and as I read that, I thought, you know, we all need times to unplug for worship. We gather corporately. This is awesome. But we need the other side, too, especially in our world where everything's electronic and we're all checking our phones every half a second, you know, which, you know, nobody, nobody texted me in the last half a second. What's going on? It's been three seconds now. I'm feeling lonely. So we need to unplug, right? So that's one side of worship. Now, here's the other side. Redmond says... But there's also a moment to be unreserved. He has a song, he talks about being undignified, and he means that in the right sense, not worrying about what people think. Rejoicing at his kindness, 
and kingship with everything that is in us, joy is a vital ingredient in Christian worship. Now, I'm going to read that again. If you agree, say amen. If you don't, that's fine. Silence, I just said, it's okay too. Joy is a vital ingredient in Christian worship. What do you think? Yeah, amen. In fact, I don't think the Lord's so worried about whether we sing in key or out of key, because I don't sing in key. Uh, What is the, you musicians, forgive me, what is it, E, G, B, D, F are the lines, and then F, A, C, E are the spaces, right? Is that it? Am I right? Musicians, help me out. Don't leave me up here all lonely. All right, thanks. Now, I kind of sing in between the lines and the spaces. Mine is like X, Y, and Z when I sing, but I do make a joyful noise. There is joy in my heart, but I don't. I'm not technically a musician of any kind. And so I don't think the Lord, in other words, this looks, you know, some have their arms up, some don't. Some have their eyes closed, some are standing. That's not, that's irrelevant. What's important is my heart attitude. Am I going vertical? Am I worshiping the Lord? That's really what it's all about. And so this is what he's advocating here, and it should cost us something. And so I have to ask myself, and probably all of us should ask ourselves from time to time, Am I just going through the motions, or am I engaged? Am I passionately engaged in worship? And that might look different even on days when we're going through some pretty serious challenges and struggles. It might look different, but there's still, miracle of miracles, can be some joy and overflowing worship and praise, even in the midst of trials, and sometimes especially in the midst of of trials. And the reason I'm bringing this up, we're going to see in this psalm, really the, the main point distilling the psalm, basically the psalmist is saying this, praise the Lord with joyful singing, in key or out of key, but praise the Lord with joyful singing. You'll see that very clearly in the text, and it's a wonder that we need a command, because this is a command, But the Lord knows our hearts, and sometimes it's just a matter of obedience, even when the feelings and the emotions are not there. Praise the Lord with joyful singing, and I want to know why. Why should we praise the Lord with joyful singing? The psalmist is going to give us three reasons why we should praise the Lord with joyful singing, and I think these are also three motivators, because we do need motivation, right? And so what is the first reason why we should praise the Lord with joyful singing? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for asking that question. Otherwise, I can't go any further. I've got nothing else to say. And here's the first reason. It's in the text. You'll see it. And that is because the Lord has revealed his wonderful salvation. The Lord has revealed his, hear the word, his wonderful salvation. Is it still a wonder to you? It should be. Now, look with me at the text. We're in Psalm 98, and I'm looking in particular at verse 1. And he says it right there, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. So is he saying we should compose songs? Well, if you have that gift, use it. Compose some songs as a gift to him. But if you don't, what it really means is, because I'm not really a composer, um, To paraphrase, sing to the Lord with fresh wonder, with fresh vigor, and with full gratitude. That's really the idea there. In other words, there should be a freshness in our singing, even if it's a song we've heard before. One of the songs we've sang, probably many of us have heard it in years past, right? 
but it should still be fresh, if you know what I mean, in terms of how it hits us and how it motivates us. And that's the idea here. Why should I do that? Look at the word for there in verse 1. It's a reason. Because for he has done wonderful things. The Lord has intervened miraculously. I'll talk about that in a moment, what's being uh, thought about here. The psalmist is thinking about a recent event in history. But I want to ask you, dear believer in Jesus, what is the most wonderful thing the Lord has done for you? Uh, as a matter of practice in my classes, I often allow a season of praise and prayer, and I do it for a lot of reasons, so one of which is just to be an encouragement. We encourage each other when we hear what God is doing, we follow up in the next class, and how did that go? Did your mother's surgery turn out okay or whatever? And I've heard most everything, uh, people who need, you know, X amount of money because their transmission went out, and lo and behold, that check shows up in the mail, or it is a, a relative who needs surgery or a job or whatever, some pretty amazing things, and I say praise the Lord when I hear it, but what's the most wonderful thing beyond that? It's your salvation in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that compares in any possible way. The gift of salvation is in every sense a, hear it, priceless gift. We can't assign any worth to it. The zeros keep going infinitely. It's an infinite gift from an infinite God who has infinite love for yes, you, yes, you. I do mean you, not the other person. I mean you and me. Yeah, but if the Lord knew all the stuff in my life, he, no, he does. He remembers things you forgot, but he still loves you. He knows things you're going to do 10 years from now. You don't even know yet. Do you know what you're going to have for lunch 33 days from now? I don't, if I'm still going to be here. And he still loves us. Isn't that incredible? Do you know anybody else like that? I don't. He knows all the dark stuff. And he still loves me. It's incredible. And if that doesn't make me want to sing, then what's it going to be? A sale at the department store? Or what, what is it? What is it that turns us on? It's the Lord and his grace and his love. And this is what's being celebrated here. Now, if he's intervened to save you from sin's penalty, then here it is. Praise the Lord with joyful singing. That's the proper response. It's worship, right? And so he says, notice verse 1, his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. So the Lord's right hand and his holy arm are really metaphors for his mighty power to save. In other words, his mighty power to save has wrought a victory for him. Let's celebrate. Well, what in particular did he do? What did the Lord do for the people of Israel? What's being referred to here is a section of Isaiah, and I'm going to give you the verse in a minute. But you know the history of Israel, right? They, uh, at least from the time of the judges onward, became enslaved to idolatry. They chose to worship all kinds of, quote, substitute gods, small g, instead of the one true God, Yahweh, the one true God. They didn't think he was good enough, apparently, and that's the blindness of sin, right? And so the Lord tried everything to wean them off of the idols, including sending his best prophets to confront them, and they either ignored them or worse, persecuted them or tried to kill them but just shut them up and silence them. And so God said, all right, I'm going to have to give you a pretty vigorous spanking for about 70 years to get you off this idolatry kick you're on. Well, so he sends them to Paganville, Babylon, for 70 years. And the old timers are longing to go back to uh, Jerusalem, back to Israel. And then the younger ones are heard all about it and they want to see it for the first time. And so God then intervenes... You see, Babylon is in control, but God raises up 
the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians had a leader at the time. His name was Cyrus. God sovereignly raised him up as well. And God miraculously used Cyrus to get the Jews back to the homeland. He issued an edict. So uh, for your notes, if you want it, Isaiah 59, 16, this is what the psalmist is thinking about, says his own arm brought salvation to him. The Lord's victory over Babylon by the Medes and Persians was prophesied way in advance by Isaiah, which means obviously God did this, right? And here it is, if you want that verse, it's Isaiah 48, 14. It reads like this, he that is Cyrus the Persian, shall carry out his, that is the Lord's, good pleasure on Babylon. And his arm, that's the Lord's power, shall be against the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And so the edict of Cyrus went forth and the Jewish remnant was allowed to return to the promised land. And this is what's being celebrated here. The Lord has gained victory for him. Literally, he saved for him. That is, he wrought a victory for himself. He worked salvation. The Lord has revealed his wonderful salvation. And that's what the psalmist is celebrating. And that's a good model for us. Look at verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed righteousness in the sight of the nations. Wow, this is fascinating. Uh, literally, the Lord has made known his saving work, that is, his deliverance of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. And so God's salvation is the result of his righteousness, literally his saving justice. He's a just God, and he has to punish sin. And Nebuchadnezzar and company in Babylon were in big-time sin, and so God had to deal with them, right? But at the same time, in that judgment came deliverance uh, for Israel, uh, Isaiah 52.10 is the basis for verse 2. If you want it, Isaiah 52.10, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now, you say, what's so important about this? Well, this was a big deal. This is unprecedented what God did. This is the first time in human history we've seen something like this. A scholar puts it this way. The heathen nations never witnessed an instance when a displaced nation came back to its own land and was restored to national unity. As a result, the nations were compelled to admit that Israel's God could do marvelous things, something historically unprecedented. The Lord has revealed his, hear it, wonderful, I mean wonderful, awesome salvation. And they're excited about it, and they're worshiping him. Look at verse 3. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our Lord. Now, there's the word loving kindness. In the Hebrew, it's pronounced chesed. No, I'm not clearing my throat. Those who are sitting in the first few rows, beware. Preacher, say it. Don't spray it. I'll try my best not to. Relax, don't leave the front rows, shalom, it'll be okay, I'll try my best. That means God's loyal love, his loving kindness. He's loyal to you. He's loyal to me when I'm disloyal to him. That's how good he is. He's awesome. And so he's saying he remembers his loyal love, his loving kindness. For your notes, Jeremiah 29.10. Listen carefully. Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you 
to bring you back to this place. And so the Lord was faithful to his promise by saving his people from Babylonian captivity and restoring them back to their homeland, the promised land. So notice what it says, the latter part there, verse 3. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, they literally every nation alive then see it. I don't know. This happened roughly in the Middle East. So it could be speaking, you know, a little bit more metaphorically here. But in the future, this is going to be literal. That phrase, all the ends of the earth, in the future, this will occur on an even larger scale. You see, before Christ returns, the Lord is going to issue his last call of grace to the world. You'll find that in Revelation 14.6, if you want it for your notes, 14.6. reads like this, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live, not in a specific location, but rather on the earth. Isaiah 62.11 also adds, looking to the future, future to us, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, this is worldwide, say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his servant and his reward is with him. You see, the Lord has revealed his wonderful salvation, and I'm compelled to ask you, have you personally experienced the Lord's wonderful salvation? You say, well, I'm kind of new to church, I I like what I'm hearing. I'm starting to read my Bible, and, but I'm not sure I know what you mean by personally experience the Lord's salvation. Well, it says in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right. The right to do what? The right to become children of God. I might add forever children, irrevocably. Who are these people? Even those who believe in his name. For those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him into their lives, he comes to indwell them and transform them from the inside out and make them literally, as Paul says, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And that's irrevocable. Once you're a child of God, it's done. The question is, are you living up to your position in Christ? And so have you received that wonderful gift? If not, receive Jesus now. Embrace him by faith. And here's why I say that. Out of all the decisions you're going to make in your life, that's the one decision you must make. Your creator, Jesus, said, you must. Did you hear it? You must. You must. You must be born again. You don't want to think about the alternatives if you do not. Receive him as savior. He loves you more than anybody you know. In fact, the people who are closest to you, who love you dearly, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't know those people. He created them as well. We all owe our existence to him. Now, the vast majority of us probably have received Christ as Savior. And the question is, since you've received his wonderful salvation, are you still grateful? You know, I've got insurance policies. Most of us have insurance, car insurance, whatever. I don't sit at home and read those policies on a regular basis unless I really need some sleep. But I'm glad I have that insurance. But I don't want my salvation to become like an insurance policy. It's just something I've got in the drawer, and maybe I'll think about it once every six months or if a crisis occurs or whatever. You say, well, that, that joy is not there. I, I, I'm being honest now. I'd like to restore the joy of my salvation how do I do that? 
Well, the Bible has a number of remedies. I'm just going to give you one if you want it. It's Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5 says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So first of all, remember. The Lord does this quite a bit in the Bible. Let me turn real quick. Keep your place. But let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. And he does this for a reason. He gives us a contrast to really to help us out. Isaiah chapter 1, and look with me please at verse 21. Here the Lord is focusing on, on uh, Jerusalem, the city. Keep your place in the psalm. Isaiah 1:21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now, see the contrast between the past and now? Murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. And he goes on to talk about how he's going to really let them have it and for their own good, correctively. You can turn back to the psalm. That's one example of many when the Lord says, you need to think about where you were so that you have some perspective on how far you have slid in the present. Do you remember the joy of your salvation when everything, the, all the colors had a vivid hue to it? You had a spring in your step. There was a lot of joy in your life. And now maybe that has dissipated. It's pretty normal human condition for us to kind of ho-hum, right? Think of your dream car, whatever your dream car is, a Maserati, whatever with all the leather seats, and when you first buy it, you're showing it off to everybody, that, ooh, that new car smell, oh, it's so great. Roll ahead three years later. Now there's uh, Coke bottles on the floor and hot dog wrappers, and the car hasn't been vacuumed or washed, and who cares? Big deal, it's just a car. Who cares? The thrill is gone. Well, we dare not say that about our salvation because we are losing sight of how precious it really is. And we're being reminded here. So he says, remember. And then he says, repent. That is, if I'm pursuing sin, I need to do an about face and start pursuing the Lord because sin is a joy killer. I can't have much joy when I'm in sin. There's all kinds of problems, guilt, defilement, etc. And then finally, he says there in Revelation, motivated by gratitude then, he's basically saying, resume your former conduct. That is to say, do the deeds you did at first. You say, well, it feels kind of awkward. The emotions aren't there. Well, for now, ignore the emotions and just do what's right. And in due time, the feeling will come. Why should I do what's right? Because it's right. It's the right thing to do. And in due time, the emotions will come. So the good news is, friends, if we've been drifting or feel a little sluggish spiritually, the Lord's got his arms wide open saying, come back. The ball's always in our court. He always wants us back. So if we're not coming back, I don't think we can blame him, right? He's saying, come back. And that's where the joy begins to resurface, right? So what are we learning here? We're learning that the Lord wants us to praise the Lord with joyful singing. We're asking, well, why should we? What are the reasons? Well, we've seen one already, and that is because the Lord has revealed his wonderful salvation and that really is a motivator. And here's a second reason. That one was past tense. This one's present tense. Here it is. And that is because the Lord is reigning right now as sovereign king. That's good news. 
The Lord is reigning as sovereign king. Do you believe that? When the world looks like it's spinning out of control? Well, notice what the Lord says. Look at verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Now, this is a vigorous command here, and all the earth's inhabitants must respond to the universal extent of the Lord's kingship. He's commanding anything with life in it to give praise to its creator. He's going to speak metaphorically here. The point is, the Lord is reigning right now as sovereign king, and we should give him praise. He says, break forth and sing for joy. In other words, don't hold it in. Let praise burst forth. Let it, like a water balloon, let it boom, just come out, right? If it's there, it should come out and be expressive. And then he's saying, worship our king in such a way that he gets the glory and you experience joy in his presence. And so, there's delight here, it seems to me, especially as I contemplate the reality that the Lord is reigning as sovereign king. Makes me want to praise him with joyful singing, even though in my case, it's out of key. Can't help that. Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. Now, all of the instruments mentioned here are suggestive. He's not prescribing only certain instruments, like use a guitar and a piano, but don't you dare use a tambourine. That's not it. These are all suggestive. With all the instruments, in other words, whatever you have, sing praise to God and make wonderful music. Have you heard of somebody named John Calvin? All right, here's what he says. Does anyone object that music is very useful for awakening the minds of men? And moving their hearts? No, everybody loves music of some kind. And so it's just an instrument, but it's an instrument combined with our voices whereby we can express the worth of our awesome creator. Why? Because he's reigning right now as sovereign king. Now look at verse 6. <clears throat> he adds some more here. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king the Lord. So exuberant music and joyful shouting uh, was used back in the day when they would anoint a king in Israel. They would do this. They would shout and play music and really have a celebration. I'll give you one example. It's 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 39 and 40. Notice what it says here. Zadok, the priest, then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon and then they blew the trumpet. Da, 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 da. Probably didn't sound like that, but for you old timers, you remember the old Imperial Margarine commercials? That's where I got that one from. I know that's not accurate because they didn't have margarine back in that day, I don't think. But nevertheless, that's my best attempt. I told you I can't sing or I'm not musically inclined. So, uh, but anyway, after they would blow that trumpet, all the people would say, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy. Now, why did the people of Israel rejoice when a king was installed? It's very simple. The king, assuming he's a good king, of course, not a bad king, uh, the king would use his sovereignty, he would use his authority to protect, to guide, to promote peace, to keep the nation secure and stable so that his subjects could thrive. And that's what our God does for us. He wants us to thrive, and he uses his authority to do such and his power. Now, in Jeremiah 18, it tells us that the Lord uproots and plants kingdoms. In other words, the Lord raises up and tears down nations. So where is ancient Greece today? 
They're struggling with their economy. Where is the great Roman Empire today? Where is Babylon and all these great empires? He races them up for a time, for a purpose, and then he tears them down again. Jeremiah is very clear on that. <clears throat> that tells me the Lord is sovereign, in control, on the macro level, on a worldwide scale. Now, the point is this. He is reigning right now. There's no doubt about it. But when we look to the future, we find he's going to reign in an even more notable way. So again, for your notes, if you want it, Revelation 11:15 says this, And there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and how long? Ever. You got it. So the Lord has supreme power and authority. Have you ever had a season in life, and maybe this is the case right now, where it seems like your world is out of control? There's so many things in your life you can't manage. It's just beyond your reach, and you're exasperated. doesn't feel like God's in control. You need to be reminded that he is in control on the macro level. He's also in control on the micro level. That is to say, every little detail, even the stuff you think is not important, is important to him. And he's involved in some way, and I dare say it, he probably cares more about the details of my life and your life than we actually care. There's peace in knowing that he is managing the circumstances of your life. Where the Lord is on the throne, there's, hear it, perfect peace. He's not chugging down a bottle of ulcer medicine. He's perfectly fine, thank you. And as we spend time in his presence, the fear, the worry, begins to dissipate, and lo and behold, miracle of miracles, we experience one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. There's others. Self-control is a good one as well. And so this is the God we are worshiping, the one who's in control of the big things and the little things. And so what he's telling us to do here is to trust the Lord and to praise him, even despite the circumstances. It says in Luke 12, 7, Jesus' words, he says this, the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so comb your hair. No. So purchase a toupee. No. What, what he's saying is, this is Jesus' words now, the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so, and it's a command, friends, are you obeying it? Do not be afraid. Are you obeying that one? But Lord, you're putting me in a situation. I can't do that. The Lord doesn't give commands that we cannot fulfill. You know why? Because with the command, he provides the empowerment. Always. If he commands you right now to build a 12-story building, you should be able to look around and see bricks and bags of mortar and everything you need. He's not playing with us. So this is doable. Now, notice I never said easy. I didn't use that word. But doable, right? You can actually have peace in the midst of otherwise trying circumstances, right? That's good news. Let's celebrate. He's saying the Lord has revealed his wonderful salvation. He's reigning as sovereign king, and so therefore we should praise him with joyful singing. But that's not enough. He gives us a third reason or motivator, and here it is. And that is we should give him praise joyfully because the Lord in the future now will return as righteous judge. The Lord will, I do mean will, return as righteous judge. Notice what he says, verse 7. Let the sea roar, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, 
Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. And now this time, not to the Lord, but he says, before the Lord, in his presence. Now, you know this world, because of what happened in the garden, is under a curse, right? In case you don't buy that one, well, here's an experiment for you. For the next year, I want you to not do a thing on your front lawn. Don't feed it, don't weed it, don't water it. Leave it alone. Let's come back in a year and see what you have. Is it going to look like a beautiful golf course? What do you think? It's going to look more like a jungle, right? Hello, neighbors. How are you? And you're going to have weeds and all kinds of things. That's the natural course of events because everything and everyone, all of us, are under a curse. It's as though creation is eagerly looking with a telescope for Jesus' return so he'll lift that curse. So, for example, in Romans, it says this, Romans 8, 19 through 22. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Everything rots, everything rusts, everything dies. And brought into the glorious freedom of of the children of God. One paraphrase, the way it says it, is it's like creation is on its tippy toe, craning its neck, squinting its eyes, saying, Lord, come back and deliver us. Maybe the creation knows something we need to know. That when the Lord comes back, it's going to be an awesome thing. Again, if my mind is focused on that, I should have some joy. Again, I should have some spring in my step. I should have some sense of optimism that people won't get. It's not pie in the sky, it's reality. He came back once, that was promised by the psalmist, and he fulfilled it. They also promised he'd come back a second time. The logic is he'll fulfill that as well, right? And so this is what we find as we read the rest of the Bible. When the Lord returns, he's going to set up his, as some would call it, his millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign, literally on this earth, where he will reign as a righteous and fair judge. That's good news. You see, the earth's curse will be pushed back and all of creation will rejoice because the Lord will return as a righteous judge. Now, that's one I think we need to focus on more because, again, as we read the, the headlines, things look pretty bad, don't they? But it's nice to know that at some point the Lord is going to set everything right. And honestly, nobody gets away with anything. It's just a matter of when, right? Not if. It's actually a wonderful thought to think the Lord's going to come back and fix the mess that we're in right now. It's a splendid reason to praise the Lord with joyful singing. Look at what he says there in verse 8. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. The Lord Jesus will physically return to earth. Revelation 19.11 says this. And I saw heaven opened, John says, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it, Jesus is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges. You say, well, where are we going to be at that point? Where's the church going to be? Well, he says, and the armies, I take that to be the church, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So my understanding, the Lord's going to take us up. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. God's going to focus on Israel at that point. And we're going to be in heaven. And then we come back at the end of the seven years with the Lord to reign with him on the earth. There's going to be all kinds of resurrections. Don't have time to go into it. By the way, if you disagree with me, I still love you. You can't change that. It's just the way it is. I'm going to love you anyway. 
But we have more data, and I, I wish I can give you more. For sake of time, I can't. But uh, Zechariah 14, just write it down. Zechariah 14, it says, And in that day, when the Lord returns, his feet will literally stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Lord will be king over, notice, all the earth. And people will live in Jerusalem, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, how do we know this is going to happen? Well, the psalmist is sure it's going to happen. Look at verse 9. He says, for, literally, because, for, because he is coming to judge the earth. The psalmist gives us a strong reason why we must praise the Lord with joyful singing. Because he loves us so much, he came once and died for us. He's actually going to come back a second time for us. That's love, isn't it? And the psalmist is all excited about it, and we should be too. As I said, this is going to occur when Jesus sets up his earthly reign. Now, just before he descends to the earth, there's going to be a party in heaven. For your notes again, that's Revelation 19, 1 and 2. It says, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. You say, well, well, preacher, wait, 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 wait one minute. I'm really struggling with this judgment thing. You mean I should get excited about ju Isn't judgment a bad thing? Well, let me ask you this. Is sin and rebellion a good thing? I don't think so. It's all rotten fruit. There's nothing good. I, can, I can't commend sin to you in any way for any reason. It's all bad. Should we let criminals run around and destroy everything and do what they want to do? We do have justice built into our laws, right? I mean, it's imperfect, but the idea there is to eradicate bad things. One scholar says this, judgment has something constructive about it. It accomplishes so much of lasting good that men should rejoice exceedingly that the Lord does judge. And this is the point. The Lord will return as righteous judge. And when was the last time you and I have rejoiced over the fact that he's returning? When is the last time we got excited about the fact that we're going to reign with him in, in a situation on earth that is close to perfection, where sin is pushed back, and Christ, the one we claim we love more than anybody else, is going to be right there with us? That's pretty exciting stuff. I think what happens is we fail to read these verses, or we just don't think about them, and, you know, all the rat race and all the stuff in life gets the best of us, and this is just some facts we kind of know about in a distant way in the book. So here's my challenge, and I'm going to go fast. I'm sorry, and if you want these, I'll give them to you afterward. Uh, there's way more than I can give you here. I'm going to limit it to Isaiah, and it's not even all the ones in Isaiah. I'm going to give you a bunch of verses on this future reign, all right? You're going to have to write fast. If you don't get them, see me afterward, or get a good book. I can recommend some stuff to you. There's plenty of material in the Bible. So some verses you might want to consider. My goal here is to get you to meditate on these and think about them, and let the Lord stir up your heart again for this awesome future reality of the millennial kingdom. Here it is, Isaiah. These are all Isaiah now. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 9, 6 and 7. Chapter 11, 5 through 9. Now the next one, there's uh, two sections here. Chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, and also 16 through 18. That's 32, 1 and 2, 16 through 18. Chapter 33, verses 5 through 6. Chapter 54, verse 13. 
Chapter 55, verse 12. Chapter 65, verses 20 through 25. Chapter 66, 10 through 14. And there's more, but that's a good sample. Revelation, just a few. Revelation 3.21, 5.10, chapter 20, verse 6. Again, Revelation 3.21, 5.10, and then chapter 20, verse 6. There's way more. Check those out. Spend some time. Now, this is the last sermon, I believe, in the Psalm series. So if you want to get more mileage out of it, maybe for your devotions for the next so many weeks, spend some time meditating and praying over some of these verses and see what God does. Open up your life to him and say, Lord, give me a future orientation. Not escapism, but give me the perspective so I can better live for you in the here and now. So what have we learned? We've learned that God wants us to praise him with joyful singing. That's the command. Praise the Lord with joyful singing. All right, why should we do that? We've seen three reasons. I'm hoping they're motivating us, and that is reason number one, the Lord has revealed his wonderful salvation. Number two, the Lord is reigning right now as sovereign king. And then number three, the Lord will return as righteous judge. Now, one person has paraphrased this entire psalm, and here's how it goes. Sing to Yahweh a brand new song. He's made a world of wonders. He rolled up his sleeves. He set things right. Yahweh made history with salvation. He showed the world what he could do. He remembered to love us, a bonus to his dear family Israel, indefatigable love. The whole earth comes to attention. Look, God's work of salvation. Shout your praises to Yahweh. Everybody, let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Round up an orchestra to play for Yahweh. Add on a hundred-voice choir. Feature trumpets and big trombones. Fill the air with praises to King Yahweh. Let the sea and its fish give a round of applause with everything living on earth joining in. Let ocean breakers call out, Encore! 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 And the mountains harmonize the finale. A tribute to Yahweh when he comes. When he comes to set the earth right. He'll straighten out the whole world. He'll put the world right and everyone in it, my friends, I've got to say, let's praise the Lord with joyful singing. He's awesome. He's got a brilliant future for us. It's so good, we get precious little details because we can't take it in. We tend to, oh, heaven's going to be great. It's going to be like, uh, uh, like sitting on a beach and eating lobster and filet mignon. It's really, really, really? Are you kidding we can't compare it to anything. It's that awesome. So we get just little glimpses of the glory that's to come. You, Christian, if you know Christ the Savior, no matter what you're facing now, I promise you, you have a brilliant, joyful, joy-filled future, secure forever in the presence of the one who loves you more than anything and whom you love more than anyone else. That's good news. Let's get excited about it. Let's praise him in prayer, shall we? How awesome you are, God, that we think about uh, a relationship between a slave and its master. And Lord, we know from your word that you call us your bondservants, your slaves. And yet we know one thing about masters, they don't take time to reveal their future plans to their slaves. They just say, jump and do this and do that. Yet you love us so much, even though you're our master. 
you take time to tenderly explain to us what you're going to do in the future and how we fit in. That's good news. We've got a big section of your word that tells us about this. And so I pray, dear God, for each of us that if we're not there yet, your spirit would work in a powerful way. We just don't want emotionalism, no. We want true, solid joy based on your word, based on your promises, based on your character. And so, Holy Spirit, do your work in us and work your fruit in a powerful way. Assist us now as we attempt to worship you with our hearts. We give you great praise and glory. We magnify you because you are the most excellent being in the universe, the one true God. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus and Lord, your church all said, amen. amen. Praise the Lord.